morning, good morning, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, wherever you are. Grab your coffee, open your Bible, and let's jump into Philippians. Take note, there are some themes that will be familiar if you've gone through the last two ones we've done on Ephesians, but that's okay. A lot of the time we need to be grounded in consistent reminders of the basics of our faith anyway. So if any of this sounds familiar, good. I'm not just repeating myself. Uh, Philippians is Paul's joy letter. The concept of joyfulness is going to pop up around 16 times over the four chapters of Philippians. So if you remember nothing else from Philippians, remember Paul's call to joyfulness in the Lord. So get stuck into chapter one. Have a quick read of the first 10 verses from chapter one and just make a note. Write down what stands out for you baby's crying in the background. Paul is quick to open his letter by declaring how joyful he is to know his fellow believers in the church of Philippi. Remember that he is going to be writing this from prison, so simply knowing that he has friends who care for him is something that brings him joy, especially knowing that they are united with him in Christ and the pursuit of spreading the gospel. And he encourages the church that God will continue his good work in them. And he doesn't bother complaining. He doesn't discuss how he wishes things were easier. He just talks about how much he loves the church and prays that they will love more and more and grow in knowledge and understanding. And note that he's not asking them to grow in wealth or even health or success, but in understanding of God. Um, maybe take a minute to pause and especially look at verses 10 and 11 and look at what Paul is highlighting. He says, what really matters so that you may live a pure and blameless life filled with the fruit of your salvation in a character produced by Jesus Christ. Um, Paul's prayer for the church isn't that they would feel happy feelings, it isn't that they make everything feel right or find wealth and all their dreams come true. None of those things that we spend so much time searching for have any place in Paul's letters. What really matters is being able to discern God's will and know his love in our lives, knowing God will help us live pure lives and in Christ's salvation know we are blameless before God. Paul wants us to be filled with the good fruit that comes from salvation. Note again that he isn't after a church that's filled with great quality production or great quality music. He isn't bothered about us having a large fancy building or being able to put on large conferences or any of that. Um, and none of those things are particularly bad per se, but they just aren't important to being a Christian. They're not important like in and of themselves to being a church. What is important is the way of living that comes from salvation and having a character that is like Christ because we know Christ. And look at the end of verse 11, for this will bring glory and praise to God. And so I figured take a few minutes to reflect about your motivations. You know, are we living to be like Christ or are we actually, and we are actually seeking after God or are we looking for what God can do for us to make our lives better? Now, that might sound a little harsh. Isn't being a Christian something that makes life better? Honestly, from a certain point of view, it definitely is. Christianity brings people together in a wonderful community. And knowing God's salvation is the bedrock of a life where you, whoever you are, know that you are made right in God's eyes. That's an identity that you really should be building your life upon. But as you read Paul it should become clear that Christ in our lives is not actually guaranteed to make life easier or more successful or better in the ways we imagine life should be better. Remember, Paul is writing this from prison, and yet he has something much greater to hold on to that gives him worth. 
So let's carry on, jump, jump straight back in, verses 12 to 14 of chapter 1. And remembering now Paul is in prison, but look, he says that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. Paul is in prison because of Christ, and everyone in his vicinity knows that. Paul understands that his suffering has shown the gospel to those around him, and even in his chains he stands firm for Christ, knowing that his life has brought more glory to God than to himself. And it's that kind of integrity that has managed to spread the gospel to those who have then put him in prison. They've seen that he is so faithful to this to this new God that they have clearly started believing the gospel themselves. And Paul's passion is for others to know God and for those who know God to be encouraged by his example. And note again that Paul is thinking only about others first and not himself. And have a look forward at verses 15 to 19. Um, you can pause this anytime you want. And he knows that some people will preach in order to gain status. And though this breaks his heart, he can still see the positive. He, Paul says, well, people are hearing about Christ. And in verse 18, so I rejoice. So here we have a man who's imprisoned for his love of God. A man who now has heard that other people are spreading the gospel using his absence to gain status. And still he can say, I rejoice because of God. I spend a few minutes reading back through the second half of chapter one and just think about how does Paul's perspective challenge us about what is actually important and how does his call to be joyful in all circumstances challenge us today? And at the end of chapter one, Paul has a kind of a philosophical question for himself. He is torn between wanting to die to be with Christ, but also wanting to spend more time with people to share Christ's love with them. And that's an incredible perspective on life. And just look at verse 21. Living means living for Christ, but dying is even better. And he goes on to say that he believes he will continue to live because that way he can continue to help the other members of the church grow and experience the joy of faith. So Paul, actually, he's looking forward. He actually has, he's embracing the idea of, of death. He wants to die so that he can be with Christ. But even in that, even in that own personal philosophy, he takes a selfless perspective. He wants to teach the rest of the church and he wants to help them grow to know Christ better before he himself can have what he really longs for. And our culture doesn't sound like it's founded on such strong stuff. I feel like our culture is built upon wishing to live as much and as hard as possible and putting off any idea that we'll ever die. Um, Paul, it seems, has learned a deep, deep secret to true contentment. Read back verse 20 to the end of chapter 1 and take a few minutes to read that and reflect on what Paul is saying and ask yourself, what stands out to you? What challenges you the most about how you are living? So straight into chapter 2 then, Paul doesn't waste any time throwing down a challenging set of questions. So are you ready? Read Philippians chapter 2 verse 1 where Paul says, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Now Paul is obviously hoping the church answers yes to all of them, and I hope we would answer yes to them as well. But he doesn't stop there. 
If we answer yes to Paul's questions, then we have to carry on reading verses 2 to 4, where Paul says, if you said yes to that, then we in the church have to agree with one another, love one another, work together together with one another for one mind and purpose. And don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Think of others better than yourself. Don't just look out for yourself, but look out for others also. And Paul says in verse 5 that we must have the same attitude that Christ had. Um, read verses 6 to 11, where Paul sets out the character of Christ in order to justify that command. Now, if we say yes to his questions at the start of chapter 2, then our aim should be to live in this specific selfless way, modelling Christ's attitude. So read those verses and maybe pause for a few minutes and reflect on what Paul is saying about Christ's attitude. How does Christ's attitude challenge us to live our lives? Now, in my Bible, the next few paragraphs are headlined by the words, Shine brightly for Christ. And Paul extols us, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with reverence and fear. Now, this is not Paul saying work hard to get salvation or work hard to show off. It's clear he is saying we already have salvation, so we should not sit on it and hide it. So if you take a few minutes, just flick back to Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 15, where Jesus says, No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket or a blanket, whichever your translation is. The lamp is to give light to everyone in the house. Paul is not saying we have to work for our salvation. He's telling us that in our salvation, we should work hard to make sure the world actually sees it. And gives glory to God. And if we've been in the church long enough, it's a sad and heartbreaking fact that we probably know a lot of people who leave the church. Not just leave our church or leave a church, who just leave the church completely. And become, I guess we call them private Christians or solitary Christians. Believing that you can know God and grow in faith in solitude just as well as anyone in a congregation. And that's not to snub times of solitude. You should have times of quiet and solitude to reflect. And there might be very good reasons why someone might leave a church. But it's really tragic when Christians decide to give up on the church in its entirety. And I kind of think Paul is well aware of this as a danger. Look back at the beginning of, chap of uh, the chapter in verse 2, where Paul tells us to work hard in one mind and purpose. Paul understands that the strength of the Christian is bolstered by the family of the church. And like any family, we're going to argue. But Paul urges us, like any family, that we've got to make up and not think about our own well-being and just our point of view. In verse 14 of chapter 2, Paul says, do everything without complaining and arguing. And I was kind of thinking, how many Christians have been discouraged and, and maybe how many people did not become believers because they came to church and they spent a bit of time there, but then they saw the lack of unity in the church. And Paul's saying, don't hide the glory of God. Don't pretend like it's a personal, like it's only a personal faith. Don't hide that, but work hard to shine that salvation out into the world and in your church and work hard to be unified in that salvation in Christ 
thinking selflessly of your brothers and sisters. And at this point in his letter, Paul has explained to the church that because he's not with them, it's even more important to keep working hard together. And I'm going to stop the first half of the study there. We're in a curious position for a Western community because we're all stuck at home. And we, too, to a degree, are lacking the leadership and community we all need. It's therefore more important than normal that we study and pray and reflect and remind ourselves of Christ's salvation and Christ's teaching and commandments. So to close, have a read over verses 12 to 18 and just spend some time thinking about what stands out to you, what challenges and encourages you. Um, and if you have any further questions or want to discuss anything, you know, feel free to drop me an email and always get in touch. Um, yeah, and enjoy.